So do what you can to be comfortable. Finding some stability in the posture. You might find it useful to take a couple of slow and deep, easy breaths. Really take your time. See if you can actually enjoy this easy, deep breathing, making it a beautiful opening ritual to the meditation practice. Maybe one more easy, deep breath in and out. Take your time. And whenever you're done, allowing the breathing to continue on its own. And then we'll practice receiving the sound of the bell. I'll ring it three times. And the formal loving-kindness practice, or metta practice, involves three ongoing activities. The first, and in some ways most important, is to bring the attention to the heart center, just as it is. You can begin by simply feeling the physical location of the heart, but in a way we're becoming interested in the more subtle, energetic qualities around or in the heart. But just begin by feeling the heart center. And then the second part of the practice as you're feeling the heart is to remember somebody easy to love. And generally speaking, we don't choose a complicated relationship like our partner or even a parent. Often these relationships are complicated. We may love this person, but the relationship is complicated. So it's best to begin with an easy relationship. Could be like somebody who's been an important mentor, really been there for you, a teacher. Could be a niece or a nephew, somebody you can love unconditionally, have a lot of appreciation for. 
Don't worry about getting just the right person. Just bring to mind somebody easy to love. If you can, visualize them, maybe even seeing them as happy, big smile, or remembering the beautiful things they've done, things you've really appreciated. So you're feeling the heart, you're remembering this person. And then the third part of the practice is a simple, ongoing repetition of a few phrases. Actually, we're sending out a loving wish each time, and the phrase is just supporting the sending out of a simple, loving wish. So I'll repeat the traditional four phrases several times. Each time I say one, you can repeat it silently in the mind. And then take a few seconds and just feel or connect with the words. And then we'll do the next. So as if you're talking directly with or to this person. May you be safe and protected in all ways. May your heart, your mind be happy and peaceful. May your body be healthy and free from pain. And may you take care of your life with ease and joy. May you be safe and protected in all ways. May your heart be happy and peaceful. And may your body be healthy, free from pain. And may you take care of your life with ease and joy. And as often as it feels appropriate, just repeat the person's name, or you might use the word dear and then the person's name, just to remind yourself that you're sending this simple wish directly to this person. And it's really a beautiful thing to do, to have a wish and to send it out. May you be safe and protected in all ways. May your heart be happy and peaceful. May you be healthy, free from pain. And may you take care of your life with ease and joy. And maybe two more rounds with this person you began with in silence now. It's okay to modify or change the phrases so that they make sense, they're useful, 
And then you can continue with this person you began with, or just bring another person who's easy to love to mind. And then on your own, keep remembering the person, the visual image perhaps, as you feel your heart, and repeat the phrases at an easy pace. Connect with the words each time you repeat a phrase. So you're noticing the simple wellspring of love or friendliness, sending out the phrase. Keep coming back to the phrase, remembering the person, feeling the heart. It's also really useful to practice with ourselves. So if that feels safe enough, just have a image or a sense of your own self right here. Or you can even use an image of yourself as a younger person, thinking of yourself as a child even. But in any case, we just open the heart to this human being right here who also wants to be happy, of course. May I be safe and protected in all ways. And may my heart be happy and peaceful. May this body be healthy and free from pain. May I take care of this life with ease and joy. 
Just continue on your own for a few minutes. Use the repetition of the phrases as an anchor for the practice. And you can experiment, if you'd like, 
bringing other people to mind. For example, just a neutral person, somebody you know but don't have strong or any kind of strong or weak feelings about, like a neighbor or an acquaintance at work. So do the same thing. Bring the person to mind, feel the heart center, and just send out these simple wishes. Repeat the phrase and send out a simple good wish. Because, of course, this person, just like ourselves, wishes to be happy, whoever they might be. appreciating the heart's capacity to wish well, to care, to love. For example, we can bring to mind now a whole group, this whole group in the room right now. Of course, many of the people here we don't know, don't even know what they look like right now. But what we do know is that everybody here in this room wants to be happy, just like we, each of us wants to be happy. We just open, practice opening the heart, feeling the heart as we bring to mind all the people taking the class with us. May everybody here, without exception, be safe and protected. May all of us together have happy and peaceful hearts. May we all be healthy and free from pain. And may we take care of our lives with ease and joy, with real skill. And not just the people here in this room, but all human beings on the planet, all creatures, the little creatures and the big creatures, all beings without exception, those near, those far, seen and unseen. May all beings be safe and protected from harm. May all beings be happy and peaceful. May all beings be healthy and free from pain. May all beings live with ease and joy in life. free from suffering and free from the causes, the roots of suffering. You can take a few more moments and just feel this natural generosity, the natural well-wishing of the heart. ourselves and all beings in all directions. And just sliding into a simple mindfulness practice. 
So we can begin by simply being aware of sitting and aware of how the mind and heart is now in the moment. Breathing in, aware of how it is, knowing it's like this. Exhaling, trusting or releasing into the way that it is now. So breathing in, knowing, cultivating alertness. Exhaling, remembering to relax and trust and let things be. We don't need to control the breathing, just the natural breath in, remembering to be alert, awake, exhaling, remembering to relax, to trust. can work specifically with the sensations of the breath and the continuity of attention. But also when there are strong distractions, remember to include the distraction as something being known in the present moment. Don't turn distractions into problems. They're just something being known. It may be unpleasant, but it's just something being known. So we'll continue in silence now for a while.
learning that it's possible to begin again, no matter what's happened, what's happening.
And now for the last few minutes of the set, you might find it useful to open the eyes if they've been closed. Again, the mind, the body feels at home with things as they are now. We express that by being relaxed, willing to be sensitive. So the mind is willing to include the sounds that are being heard, the sights that are being seen, the sensations that are being felt, and the thoughts that are being thought. Everything's included. Unconditional acceptance. So instead of a neurotic doing, fixing, manipulating, perhaps notice a kind of stillness so that neurotic background activity, maybe at times at least, is still. And there's a peace of equanimity. We're just letting things be the way that they are. This is how it is now. Can this be okay? your time and stretch out if you need to. So just uh, so you know, it was 30 minutes. Really can be evidence that you can sit for 30 minutes if you've been finding it challenging. Of course, it Generally, for most people, it's easier to do in a group than it is to do alone at home. But you can be inspired. And of course, you can come join the open sits. Every day we have open sits at the center. And there are a number of other Buddhist centers around town where you can, if you live close to them, uh, join join them in their open sits. But here at the center, every morning, 7 to 9 a.m., on a half an hour schedule. So you come at the top at the bottom of the hour between 7 and 9 a.m. And then Tuesday nights, like right now, in the other room, there's an open sit from 7.30 to 9, again on a half an hour schedule. So if you get there a little bit before, you just wait, and then you hear the bell ring at 7.30 or at 8, and then you go in. If you're there, of course, before it starts, you can go right into the meditation hall. 
but I'm sure you, those of you who've been trying to practice at home, have found that having a, a routine really helps. A particular place where you practice, maybe even keeping the chair, the cushion there, and for use only for meditation practice, even a shawl. Some of you might even create an altar or just be looking out a window. But don't uh, be shy about really thinking about how you can make support the practice by making the making it a whole ritual, like something that's pleasant, not something that's heavy or tight. Like oh, I, you know, we can overdo it, you know, and then it's not really we don't relate to it. So it's got to be something that feels real. Whatever you create, whatever ritual or altar or whatever, has to actually have the desired effect, which you feel safe, it feels pleasant to be there, the heart, mind likes to show up. And then it, it can really get that energy if you just only use it for that purpose. And not only that, it sort of stands out as a reminder. So you're walking by you know, that room or that little corner, and you see it, your cushion or chair, and it reminds you. And every time you're reminded, of course, you could feel guilty. Oh, I should be meditating. Or you can just remember why it's a value in your life. And you can just practice being mindful right then in that moment. Whether or not you do a formal sit, what's in the way of just being a little bit more awake, a little bit more released or relaxed into the way it is? And this is really the key. This is the heart of practice. Is not... Because, you know, some people are really good at, like, making their body and minds do things. You know, they're just disciplined. But that doesn't make them necessarily people who develop the practice. People who really develop the practice have a love affair with it. They become great devotees of mindfulness because they like it. They find that it takes care of them. It's like a good friend. And they don't wait to their formal meditation time to practice, because they like it. <laughs> you know, when we like to do something, if we like a song, we play it in our mind all day long. So, you know, we like, you know, the different personality patterns that keep manifesting in our relationships. <laughs> Even though it may seem weird, we like them. Otherwise, we wouldn't keep doing them. So mindfulness is also a way of being. It's, it's just as much a personality trait as any personality trait. It can be something we like to sort of live out of, being the person who's awake and relaxed, and discover, boy, life seems to work a lot better. So let's take some time and check in. Both, uh, I'll talk a little bit more before we end about integrating practice in daily life, but Tonight it'd be especially good to share any experiences with the loving kindness practice, either what we did tonight or your own practice at uh, at home during the week. Questions about the mindfulness practice, and then also really relevant tonight is any comments, reflections about how the practice is just arising naturally at different moments, not formal sitting, but at other moments in your life, and sharing your reflections about that or any questions you have about that. And again, always say your name if you decide to speak up. Anybody can go. Would like to start? What are you learning? 
question. My name is Dorothy. Um, with regard to loving kindness, would it be appropriate to practice that with a loved one who's deceased? Traditionally, when you're doing it intensively, it can get confusing, like using it, you know, for many, many minutes, because part of what really helps collect the energy of the mind in the loving kindness practice, you know, we have we're feeling the heart center, but we're remembering the person. But the the third part is like we're actively sending out our loving wish, but when someone's deceased, the mind doesn't know where to send it. I mean, we can imagine heaven or, you know, hell or whatever you think the person might be. But, you know, the fact is we don't know. And that not knowing can actually uh, disturb the practice a little bit. So I would recommend working with people that um, you can visualize as being present here and now somewhere. You know, obviously not necessarily right there in the room with you, but you know there's somewhere. We have a sense that there's somewhere. And that gives the mind some confidence that you can send out something to them, offer them your good wish. Now, but it is good to work with people who are deceased. Generally, in this tradition of practice, the way we do that is it's more like a dedication. So we, we do our best to be a good person, or we donate some money to some good cause, or we, uh, you know, we put up with something that's difficult in our life, and we can uh, dedicate the goodness of that action. May this goodness, may this good, this uh, merit, this blessing, may it somehow find its way and support that being wherever they might be, wherever that mind stream is. May they receive the blessing of my life or the goodness of my actions. And so, you know, typically in Buddhist cultures, they, you know. Um, honoring you know the anniversary of someone's death they might go to the monastery and feed the nuns or the monks or offer a gift to some worthy cause in the name of a deceased person and it may seem just like a empty ritual but <clears throat> what's not empty is what the mind is doing the mind is doing something difficult like giving money away is difficult for us or trying to be a more patient person can be challenging and then doing that work and then giving it away. And it's it's a beautiful thing to do. Just in our own mind, it's a beautiful thing to do, regardless of whether it actually affects another person, which I think it does, actually, whatever wherever that person might be. But what I know with great certainty is it's good for my heart or mind in offering out any goodness, any um, skillful action that I've undertaken. So even like after meditation, the last few seconds of the meditation, you know, the, your little mindfulness bell and your smartphone goes off, and uh, there you are, you know, and then you just remember, well, it was good to sit down for half an hour. I have a busy day. I'll put aside this time. This is a beautiful thing to have done. So I happily dedicate, may the blessing, may the goodness of this uh, benefit my grandma, my grandfather. You know, or my parents, if they passed away. Or share it with all living and beings that are no longer living. You know, why not share it with everybody? Yeah, thanks for asking. Other comments or questions people have? Anybody try the loving-kindness practice at home this week? Or any thoughts about how it went tonight? Difficult, easy, pleasant, unpleasant?
Yeah. What's your name? Matthew. Thanks, Matthew. Yeah, generally speaking, you know, the loving kindness practice is more of a concentration practice, in which case it's nice not to have disturbances to get the momentum of the concentration going. So, you know, we're encouraged to sit comfortably when you're doing the loving kindness practice. When you're doing the mindfulness practice, pain actually can be a very useful object of mindfulness if it's not overwhelming pain. So pain in the body, pain in the back, like you described, can be, like you said, you know, you can work with it. So, you know, you could drop the metta or the loving kindness practice and do the mindfulness practice with the pain in the back. That's one option. The other is to just be a little bit more resolved to return to the phrases. Let the pain happen in the background, but really keep going to the image of the person, to the sensations in the heart, to the repetition of the words. And see if, as the concentration of the, and with the loving kindness develops, that uh, pain in the back fades in the background. It often will, but you need a lot of upfront uh, energy or effort to connect and sustain with the loving kindness practice the three parts of it. Um, but it really is okay when the pain, if you can't alleviate the pain, to then drop the loving kindness practice and work with what's coming up. Sometimes. Some, and maybe people in the room notice you're doing the loving kindness practice, so hard to softening or opening, but then all of a sudden a lot of anger comes in. It can happen that way, where it almost uh, evokes the opposite feeling in the mind. What do you mean loving kindness? You know, and this person is, you know, and then some resentment might come up, and then you might need to again, you might need to just be mindful of the resentment that's come up or whatever emotional pain that's come up and just put the loving-kindness practice aside. Or when you understand more about the loving-kindness practices, you could just reorient it. So instead of doing the friendliness, the metta practice, you do the compassion practice. Karuna is the word. And so instead of having compassion maybe for the person you resent, you can have compassion directly for yourself because resentment is a painful state of mind. Oh, I care about this pain. You can do this with your your pain in the back. So if you wanted to stay with the theme of love, you could just let it morph into compassion. Oh, this pain in the back hurts. I care about this pain. May this heart be at ease with things as they are. So on the sheet from week five, if you didn't get it, I have it up here. It gives the phrases for the four kinds of loving kindness practice. So there's the basic practice of friendliness or loving kindness. Then when that loving attitude meets suffering, it morphs into compassion. Compassion is the heart that can be close to suffering. It's a beautiful state of mind. It seems paradoxical when the heart opens to what's painful, our own pain or somebody else's. Being close to somebody or our own pain is beautiful, but it means we're close to the pain. You know, it's being intimate with the pain, but Instead of being disturbed by it, it's evoking this powerful uh, movement of the heart. I care about this pain. I care about your suffering. I care about my own suffering. May this heart, may your heart be at ease with the conditions as they are now. So a powerful wish can come out of that. And instead of like, usually, you know, when pain, we're in the proximity of our own pain or somebody else's pain, we kind of want to withdraw, like we feel it's going to be contagious or... If I open to it, it's just going to get worse. 
So we have this inner, like, self-centered energy, like, pulling in. But actually, compassion, or any of these heart states, it's an outer flow. It's like a wishing. That's why we use the phrases to kind of ignite this inner wellspring where the heart is going out. May you be happy. May you be at ease with this pain in your life. You know, something like that. May your joy continue. May it increase. May it never end. That's the third kind, appreciative joy, sometimes called um, empathetic joy, or the Pali word is mudita. So we have loving kindness, compassion. When the mind sees happiness or sees success, somebody else's or our own success, then we appreciate it. So it's appreciative joy. The heart sees goodness or sees success or sees something, a little kid having a good day, playing with the leaves, you know? And we can just walk by and we can appreciate. May your happiness continue. May it increase. May it never end. And then the fourth is, is equanimity. You know, your happiness, the phrase for equanimity is your happiness doesn't so much depend on my wishes. It really depends on your actions. But I care about you. I love you. I wish for your success in life. But I understand that your happiness or unhappiness uh, depends on many causes and conditions of which I am not in control. So that's what equanimity is. It's like caring, but understanding that other people's happiness really depends on their actions primarily, not our wishes for them. But still, I care about you. I wish well for you. May your happiness continue. May you find peace or ease with your difficulties in life. So whatever their particular situation is, we relate with equanimity. Equanimity in Buddhism is a, a, one of the beautiful emotions. The Buddha said, these are the only four emotions you need. So anyway, this, you know, what you said, Matthew, gives me, gave me an excuse just to share a little bit more about the loving-kindness practices. So when you have pain because of a memory, thinking about somebody else, or just something ordinary like physical pain, you can work with it. You can use it and find the way of relating to the experience. Like, how can the heart relate in a loving way to this experience? So that I'm, st I'm not running away from it. I'm staying with it. That I'm not in a defensive mode with it. I'm not in a reactive or manipulative mode with it. I'm really in a receptive and generous relationship with it. And you see how that really fits in. The whole path is finding ways to go beyond self-centeredness. So how do we relate to back pain without reinforcing a self-centered relationship where we care about it? You know, And that's not a self-centered relationship because what we're doing is we're finding the heart that can care about it instead of the heart that's worried, it's going to get worse, I'm never going to be able to sit again, why is this happening to me, it doesn't seem to be happening to anybody else. That's all self-centered activity. So we can just play with the loving-kindness practice until it really works. And remember, you can be creative with the phrases. Don't feel stuck with the traditional phrases that are in the handout. Use them until you find something that really works with how your mind is conditioned, what your mind likes, what actually you know, evokes or supports that wholesome uh, way of relating. Other questions or thoughts? Yeah. And your name? Maddie. Maddie.
sadness. Like for example, like I'll be working with my grandma. I'll be like, oh no, I forgot to call my grandma. And like, then I'm going to be seeing her tomorrow, and I have to like, apologize for that. But like she's sick, and like just like being so distracted. And like, no, I'm trying to be doing this. I mean, mm-hmm. good facts to her, and I'm feeling guilty again. And, but like what I said to Matthew, if the feeling guilty is reaches uh, enough intensity that it's causing some stress to sort of stay with the phrases, stay with the image of your grandmother, then there's a way to just more let the practice morph. So that guilt is a kind of pain in your mind and heart. So just care about it. Ah, oh, this is guilt. So that's a moment of mindfulness. Right? Oh, it's just guilt. And that may be enough, because mindfulness, if it's really balanced, it has love embedded in it. A moment of seeing the breath, a moment of seeing guilt in the mind, is a moment of loving kindness, if, it, if the mindfulness is balanced, right? But maybe it's not, because initially when we feel something afflictive like guilt, we tend to be aversive. So it might be good to do some loving kindness. So because it's painful, we, it has the loving kindness will have the flavor of compassion. Oh. I care about this pain. I care about this guilt, feeling badly about not having called my grandmother. I care about this. May this mind and heart be at ease with this condition of having forgotten or not called my grandma. May this heart be at ease. I care about this guilt. I care about being an imperfect human being. You can generalize it, you know? I care about being a a human being that makes mistakes. It's not easy being a human being. May this heart be at ease, being a human being. So you can be really creative. So it's like, a, you know, it's like a Buddhist form of prayer. These loving kindness practices. There's an element of creativity. The creativity keeps the mind engaged. It has to be in the moment. That's what really makes it powerful, transforming. If you do it mechanically, you know, you're just like a parrot repeating the phrases. It has a minimal effect. I mean, it's better than not doing it, for sure. But when you can you know, really address what's going on and then find a, way to be, find a way for the heart to be generous with what your experience is, and you'll find it very potent. And then once you transform that guilt, you go right back to your grandma. Then it'll be easy to sort of generate basic, you know, beautiful feelings of love for her. Thanks, Maddie. Other thoughts about the practice? How about daily life practice? Anybody find it, what you're learning in your formal sitting and in the classes, just arising in moments during the day, maybe in surprising ways, maybe in challenging ways? Sometimes we don't want to be mindful. Like, you know, there you are, it's 11.30, you got to get up early, and you're just watching TV obsessively, eating food you don't need to eat, you know, texting, or whatever else you might be doing. Multitasking at the same, you know, and then all of a sudden a moment of mindfulness, and there you are, crystal clear, relaxed, seeing your life as it actually is. It can be quite disturbing, <laughs> but it's good, of course. It's really healing. It's better to see it than to not see it. If we're sick, it's better to know we're sick, right? When the mind is off, we're angry, we're being inappropriate with someone. It's better to know it in a very clear, honest, direct way than to be oblivious to it. But it's not necessarily pleasant. So any thoughts from your last couple weeks? Yeah. 
Say your name again? Melissa. Melissa. Um, I, this comes up all the time, and I kind of stumble. Um, I find I, I jabber the most with my thoughts, and I tell them how cool this is, and I, 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 it comes up all the time, and where I stumble talking and living as I'm a parent. And as soon as we hit that attachment thing, can you really not be attached to your kids? Um, and you never, you always say, you personally always talk about a spouse or a lover, you never say it, you're a child. Yeah, I don't have something. <laughs> well, I speak about what I know about. But you know, it's interesting with the practice and the different themes that come up in the practice, we always tend to go to the most challenging thing. So, you know, a more relevant question is, uh, is there a way to go beyond our attachment to our new smartphone or go beyond our attachment to our favorite TV show, you know, or like more ordinary things. Like we can get really hung up about really ordinary things. I got a new toothbrush at the co-op recently, you know, and it's, it's got this specially formed handle and it has a bigger head than I've had before. <laughs> This is after my dentist told me that I was wearing down my teeth by brushing too hard. You know, so I, I have a whole different relationship now. I can get attached to the toothbrush. And, but this is the kind of thing I can practice with and I can experience some uh, success. Like how to be really engaged, sh really show up in the toothbrushing thing without attached attachment, without taking it personally, without constructing the somebody who's now really serious about brushing their teeth and is going to do it right and you know so I work with the small work with the small things keep working with the small things and you'll work your way toward the big things you know and when it arises naturally about attachment and your children then work with it but don't don't tell yourself oh how can that be how can I be not attached to my children well you know it happens anyway with kids. You know, one thing you can think of is when a child is, you know, two weeks old, the way a parent relates to the child is one way. But when a child is 46 years old, you know, and successful, well, it's very inappropriate for the mother or the father to be, you know, obsessing. So that transition is going to happen. So as you're looking at your young child or whatever, however old the child is, Try to see the whole life spectrum there. You know, that the way you're relating to your child now, it's functional. You're not doing it because you're attached. You're doing it because it's appropriate. Your sort of radar for safety, it's functional. It's not that you need it, but this is your job. And the love you feel and the attachment you feel, see it as sort of a, a functional part of nature. But you don't need to imagine that it's about you it's just nature taking care of itself you know it's like built in to the mechanism of being a mother or being a parent that sort of uh, sensitivity and that kind of radar and the pain that sort of sympathetic pain that we all feel with our friends and lovers um, but especially you know more with parents and children but we don't need to construct anything above it. Just let it be part of nature. You know, oh, this ache, it's just nature. Just nature doing its thing. It's not Melissa, you know, caring about her child. That's, that story is extra. You don't need that story about how much you love your child. 
you feel it directly, viscerally. Let that be what it is. You know, it's just, oh, this is that instinctual and cultural conditioning. You know, it's this bond that's created. And this bond is already morphing. Your bond is different than it was when the child was two weeks old. And it will be different in 10 years and different in 30 years. And, you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. And so you just, like, you can, you don't have to do the attachment. It's like built in. So you can really let go of having to be a good mother because it's like instinctual. And actually getting out of the way and not building a self around it makes us a more nimble, uh, effective parent because we're not overdoing it and then out of exhaustion, underdoing it. You know, there's a, a, a kind of a more nimble balance. Yeah, but, you know, I'm speaking... Well, I was a, a classroom teacher. I know it's a totally different thing. But I've been around that chaos and that responsibility for young children. And uh, so I have a little taste of it. But uh, even if we're not successful, like in terms of uprooting all the attachment, we can minimize it. We can weaken it. You know, so it's only the wholesome, natural sort of uh, radar and concern and sensitivity that an adult, a caregiver, has for somebody who's vulnerable and needs caretaking. Did you have a comment? Yeah, I was just going to share. I had an interview this week, and usually I get like so anxious that when I'm in the interview, I don't even know what I'm saying. I get what I even say. But I was able to kind of just label before, just be like, okay, I'm anxious. It's an interview that's normal. And I just felt like I was able to be much more present during the interview, and I actually felt like it was one of my best interviews. So. Oh, good. Yeah. Neat. And that feeds into one of the things I wanted to mention from the week six handout, you know, like how to bring the practice into daily life. And one thing is to choose something that, I mean, maybe you don't interview regularly, but something you do somewhat regularly and make it an intentional place of practice. And I'd recommend you do it right now as I'm explaining it. So it should be something you do at least three to 15 times a week. Uh, that's difficult, challenging for you. It could be a particular relationship at work when you have to interact with this particular person. It could be going to meetings. It could be having interviews. It could be like you don't like cooking for yourself or you don't like traffic and your mind tends to different you know, afflictive mind states tend to arise during those. So right now, choose a particular difficult place in your life. And then what you need to do now is you have to, as many times as you think of it, you need to establish an intention that when that situation arises for you, like a mindfulness bell will go off, and you remember to be mindful. And preferably, that little bell in your mind will go off a minute or several seconds before that event starts. So you have a moment to remember to compose yourself, right? Stable, alert, relaxed. When we have the intention, the resolve to be mindful in a difficult situation, it doesn't mean you're going into that difficult interaction or situation with a plan, right? That's not mindfulness. That's control. Now, I'm not saying control doesn't work or having a plan doesn't work, but you don't need to be the person with the plan. Whatever you've learned that's successful or what you've learned that doesn't work, that's going to be there if you're mindful. You don't have to like intentionally hold on to tactics or strategies. 
I mean, if you want, you can remind yourself. But the real practice is to, in a sense, enter the situation naked, meaning we're relaxed and we're alert. It's our only weapon <laughs> for life. Of course, we can respond creatively in the moment. So it doesn't mean we're not going to respond when we're spoken to or something like that. But we're really pouring ourselves into the alertness, like clarity, wakefulness, and release, relaxation. And the relaxation, we're really going to use the experience of the body. The nice thing about having a body is it's always happening. And it gives us an anchor. Wherever we are in life, we can just drop into the body. And actually, it allows us to listen better. It's surprising, actually, when we really need to like hear what somebody says. If you stay really attuned to the sensations in the body, you're going to be better able to be uh, to hear what someone's saying. If you're like leaning in and really trying to hear, I got to remember, I got to. It actually gets in the way of being awake and receptive to who the person is, what they're saying. So just experiment with that. So the bell rings, and then you just do your best, right? Trusting, being relaxed and alert. And often, you know, with difficult situations, there's fear. So we have to be relaxed with the fear, you know, as you described. Or, you know, we might have other sort of personality patterns that get triggered in those difficult situations. And so there needs often needs to be a lot of forgiveness. We have to forgive the conditioned mind for having conditioning, for having habits. Because that's what the habit mind has. It has habits. And they're going to arise habitually when the particular stimuli are there, the habits are going to arise. Mindfulness is not controlling the habits. Mindfulness is understanding, oh, there are these habits, and it's like this now. You know, there's shame, and it's like this. There's controlling energy, and it's like this. There's fear, and it's like this. So you can literally, if it's helpful, name it. Give it a name. You don't have to name it, but you might find, especially when the states are very strong, Simply naming the predominant afflictive state of mind, in a way, it creates space. Because then there's an awareness that this is happening instead of being sucked in, lost in that afflictive state of mind. So experiment with that. So that's one of the strategies I mentioned in the handout. I'll just mention some of the other strategies that really help integrating practice throughout the day. So. Everybody now has a particular difficult place that's going to be a formal place of practice. So you've got your meditation chair or meditation cushion at home. You've got your local meditation center that you can practice at. And then you have your difficult place in life that's going to happen several times a week that's going to be a place of practice for you. And then if you have a Dharma friend, friends who are doing the practice, it's really nice to talk to them about your success or failures at bringing your practice into your difficult places, as well as your sitting practice and, and some of these other things I'm going to talk about. So that's just another point. Having friends that practice is really important. We're going against the stream. Our culture, and especially our economy, is built up upon distraction. And this practice is the practice of non-distraction. I mean, that's somebody asks, well, what do you do at Common Ground? So I'm practicing not being distracted. That's, for people who don't know anything about the practice, that's a really easy way to talk about what you're doing. 
you know, how to be in life without being distracted, how to be in life without being stressed and distracted, or distracted by stress, or being distracted by distractions, <laughs> you know, distractions of distractions of distractions. We're so distracted, we don't even realize how distracted we are. So having uh, friends, having a place like Common Ground to hang out and to be reminded, it's really important. Or having other, there's, you know, nowadays there are a lot of places to sort of tap into community. For example, online there's all kinds of good and bad information about meditation practice, Buddhist meditation practice. So you have to have some discernment to sort of get a sense of if this talk or this reading is going to be useful for you. But there is a, quite a bit of good material. Even at the Common Ground website, you can download a lot of talks. But another thing that's really important and related to, you know, good friendship, and the Buddha emphasized good friendship a lot, because it's the second uh, important thing about integrating practice, remembering the teachings. This is really the hardest thing. Like Thich Nhat Hanh, this person I mentioned earlier, said, the real enemy is forgetfulness. We forget to be mindful. We forget that it's possible to be mindful. But of course, in any moment, no matter how beautiful or difficult it is, it's possible to be a little bit more mindful, a little bit more relaxed and alert, more fully present. But we forget. So how are we going to remember? Somebody once asked a, a famous Thai monk and meditation master, Ajahn Buddhadasa was his name. He trained a lot of the early Western teachers in this particular tradition of Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism. Somebody, I think it was Ajahn Sumedho, a well-known Western monk, um, asked him once, I'm not sure he asked him, but anyway, he told this story. Somebody asked him, if you were stuck on a deserted island and you could only have one thing, <coughs> what would it be? And he gave this great answer. I'd have a little medallion, like a little necklace with a medallion on it, and it would say, this is how it is now, <laughs> right? It's kind of nice, like, wouldn't that be a nice reminder, like a little voice of wisdom, the back of the mind saying, honey, this is how it is now. You know, however achy your body is right now, out of habit, we could just be resisting the different unpleasant sensations in our bodies. Or there could be a little sweet voice of wisdom saying, Honey, this is how it is now. This is how it is to have an aching body. This is how it is to be sleepy at the end of the evening. You know, This is how it is to be charged up about becoming the next great meditator. This is how it is. It's just this. It basically, turning life into a moment of simple, clear, relaxed presence. Now, there are many ways to remember the teachings. A particular line in a poem particular line from the Buddha or some teacher might just really resonate with you for a couple weeks or a couple months. And you might write it down, you know, put it on your computer screen. Write it down and just put it in your pocket on a piece of paper. Every time you put your hand in your pocket, you won't even have to pull it out and read it. You'll just remember, oh yeah, everything, or like another pithy phrase from the Buddha, nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. If you want the whole passage, you could say, having heard this, you have heard, heard all the teachings. Having practiced this, you've practiced all the teachings. Having realized this, 
you've realized all the teachings. Nothing whatsoever should be clung to as I, me, or mine. That's a, you, could, you don't need any more instruction. You know, that would be enough to carry us through life. Or another pithy phrase from the Buddha, the supreme liberation has been discovered by the Buddha, namely, liberation through non-clinging. That's the heart of the path, liberation through non-clinging. He has some beautiful quotes, you know, about love being the way and the unshakable release of the heart. So you just have to find what actually works as a reminder for yourself. And then don't be shy about, you know, having a statue in your house if it reminds you of the practice or having a note in your pocket or something on your computer screen or whatever works, basically, for you. Not to be afraid to participate, you know, to kind of do what works. I mean, we remind ourselves of all kinds of things. People have pictures of their favorite movie stars. You know, why not, why not have something that's a little bit more functional, like remembering to be alert and relaxed, remembering to be kind. Another way to integrate practice, so we have having a particular difficult place and intentionally, like, cultivating the intention. You have to remember you are resolved to practice in that place or you won't remember when it happens. So at ordinary moments, like when you get up in the moment, then remember, oh, I'm going to meet this person today. And it's my intention to be mindful, to be relaxed and really vividly present when I'm with that person and just to see what happens. So you have to cultivate the intention and then the mindfulness will just happen you won't have to try to be mindful you will just remember to be mindful in that difficult situation find ways to remember the teachings memorize a little line or two uh, have regular ways to sort of like a book and you don't need to read books and books and books you can have one book a really good book and you just read a page a couple paragraphs and that's enough you can just reread the same paragraphs, and it will be like really potent. So don't feel like you need volumes. But just to have something where you can access the teachings, remind yourself of the teachings, can be really useful. Another way is to uh, find a particular place in life to slow down. So now, instead of a difficult place, you're just choosing an ordinary activity that you do at least every day, like brush your teeth or wash dishes. <clears throat> cook food, <coughs> fold clothes, walk from your car to your office. So now you should be thinking of something right now. And just choose one or maybe two things, but not more, because you won't do it. Turning on lights, walking downstairs. Okay, so those are just some options. Something ordinary you do at least once a day preferably many times a day. And this is an ordinary activity that doesn't involve a lot of talking because it's, you know, it's being mindful when you're talking is like graduate or postgraduate level. It's not so easy. But walking downstairs, very easy. Chopping vegetables, easy. Washing dishes, easy. Folding clothes, easy. Walking down the hallway, easy. So if you intentionally choose a couple of ordinary uh, ordinary events that you do several times a day, you'll just naturally uh, start integrating practice. Like, 
every time you sit in the car, before you turn it on, you just have a 30-second meditation. Just there. I mean, it's not too weird. People, 30 seconds, people won't think something's wrong. You know, you're just sitting there, just in a sense, the mind, heart, landing in the experience of sitting, sitting, sitting. You can just use that word so you're not spinning about what just happened or what's going to happen. Just sitting, sitting, sitting. Sitting's like this. Can this be okay? Just sitting, sitting. And then when you don't need the phrase, the word, that you releasing with clarity into that experience, having a moment of just sitting. Or when you come home, instead of doing whatever you do, just lie down and do a lying down meditation for 30 seconds, 10 minutes. Punctuating the day with these ordinary places of practice, very powerful. Really, as powerful as your daily 30-minute sit or whatever you can afford to do. So did, did you think of something? So think of something now. It should be a neutral event where you're not having a lot of like uh, need to interact with other people. So you're alone. You don't have to be alone, but you're not, you don't have to be a social being. And you can just pour your life into that activity, walking down the stairs, turning on the light. It's just that. So you're just learning, to, and you can slow it down a little. That's that will break your unconscious habit. Mostly we do these ordinary things unconsciously on automatic pilot. So if you just slow it down a little bit, it will feel like a new kind of event. Like you normally go from your bathroom to your bedroom, you know, walking at your ordinary pace. But if you slow it down, it's going to feel like a different kind of reality, you know, because normally you're not walking at this pace or brushing your teeth slightly slower or chopping your vegetables. It doesn't have to be even, somebody might not notice even that you're doing it a little slower, but you're just slowing it down a little bit so that you're, it's like the slowing it down is your reminder to be mindful, to sort of release into the experience, to give yourself to the experience. You're valuing the present moment. That's what mindfulness is. It's a respect, a basic respect for things as they are. So when we're chopping vegetables, well, that's how it is. It's the chopping the vegetables. Okay, so now you got a few things. Remembering the practice, choosing a difficult place, choosing an ordinary place, and cultivating friendships or ways of uh, getting support, ongoing ways of getting support. These are ways that will really help deepen your practice and help it integrate throughout life. So it's not just something you do when you go on retreat, when you sit every morning or as often as you can sit. The last thing I'll say, don't be shy about doing retreats. This center has retreats, uh, a day-long retreat every month and a half-day retreat every month on Saturdays. And then we have residential retreats four times a year. And then we have a year-end retreat between Christmas and New Year's that's not a residential retreat, but it's a four-and-a-half-day retreat. So just jump in. And there are many other retreats you can do that are organized by other organizations that I can help you find or other people can help you find that are in the same style of practice so you'd be familiar with. It's a way to exponentially strengthen your commitment and your understanding of the practice. There's something about, especially residential retreats, where you leave behind your schedule, your relationships, Generally, we practice in silence most of the time when we're on retreat. 
and it uh, the kind of faith or confidence in the practice and the understanding of the practice and the ability to sit with what comes up in practice just grows exponentially when you can get on retreat. And in this particular tradition of practice, there's a real emphasis on retreat practice. Basically, that's what monks and that's what a monastic life is. It's a lifelong retreat. Now, as lay people, we're not going to disappear in a monastery for the rest of our lives, most of us. But we can go away and be monk-like and nun-like for a weekend or a week. Or, you know, people like me have gone on three-month retreats, a number of them, and, and really benefit from that practice. So take advantage of the schedule. And, of course, there are many programs at Common Ground. Look through the calendar or the, the newsletter if you haven't. See what fits your schedule. It's a way to get to know this is how you make friends, you know. So you have to dig in because... If you really want to do this practice, that's not enough. You've got, to, you've got to cultivate the causes and conditions that will lead to you doing the practice. That's the only way it will become part of your life. Wanting to do it, recognizing it as a good thing, isn't enough. There are a lot of things we recognize as good things. But you actually have to sow the seeds that will support you doing the practice. And these are some of the things that really help. And the last thing, don't be shy if you have questions. Usually after programs, there's time for people to ask questions, any of the programs that I teach. But also, sometimes you may want to talk one-to-one -one about with me about your practice. And um, I don't have a lot of time, but I can meet with people. I put aside uh, time each week. And so you can just send me an email. And you know, often it's 10 days out, but you know, find a time that works in both of our schedules. And we'll have like 30 minutes to talk about practice together. So don't be shy about that. It's one of the reasons I'm here. You know, it's part of my job to do that. So uh, feel free to send me an email. You can either just send it to info at the main email address for the center or mark at commongroundmeditation.org. And that's on our newsletter. Feel free to stay up or come up if you have questions or if you've missed any of the Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.